open your copy of God's Word to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We're continuing our verse-by-verse exposition of this book. And it really goes with that last phrase of that song we just sang. Chapter 6, my soul finds its satisfaction in Him alone. That's a hard concept. If you just stop and think about it, that uh, my soul is satisfied in Him alone. Um, So easy for all of us to say, I'm not real happy with you right now. I'm not happy with my kids right now. I'm not happy with my spouse right now. I'm not happy with my job right now. I'm not happy with my income right now. I'm not happy with the way the markets are going right now. I'm not happy with my country right now. We have all kinds of things we're not happy with, and yet we're just saying, I am happy in Him alone. Mark's sermon last week, so why grumble and complain? We have Christ. We have Him. There's no need to grumble and complain. We can be happy this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 is a passage that really wrestles with our dissatisfaction with life and how it's common to man. Let me read it to you. Hear God's Word. Ecclesiastes 6, 10, uh, 12 verses here. There's an evil which I've seen under the sun, and it's prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. And yet, God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he, for it comes in futility, and it goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, it never knows anything, it's better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite's not satisfied. For what advantage does the man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This, too, is futility and a striving after wind. Whatever exists has already been named and is known what man is. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? And who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Again, this is a great passage of scripture that takes a lot of meditation and thought to kind of work through and to think through what, what's really going on here. And what you find going on here is, is, is our life uh, is going on here. And he's trying to show us how vain sometimes we live it. Um, you've heard the old adage, don't marry a dreamer. I was thinking about that with this passage, that a dreamer is someone who is always telling you 
of the great things he or she's going to do. They have dreams that are wonderful. I said, don't marry the dreamer, meaning don't marry the person with great intentions of what they're going to do, but you can already see in their lifestyle, they don't complete what they dream. They don't have follow-through. They don't finish the course. In other words, if you marry somebody who has great intentions, but doesn't ever accomplish their intentions, you're going to be, mis- you're going to be dissatisfied. You're not going to be happy. Because there's lots of promise, but no reward. A lot of things we're going to do together, but it never gets done together. Well, as I was thinking about that, you know, that's, we call that sometimes the low life of high hopes. You know, you're just, you're just living down here. You, you always want to live up here, but you just never make it. And I got to thinking, I'm like that sometimes. I've always been a dreamer. And I've got lots of dreams that I've never completed. And I got to thinking, I think we're all a little bit like that. We all could take some time to say, there's things I wanted to do, and I, I just wasn't able to do it. I wasn't able to complete it. I had some plans. I had some dreams. I had great aspirations. Now, I've got some stuff done, but... There's other stuff that were really, it would have really been cool. And I just never got to it. Or I was inhibited somehow. I just, it's, now it's impossible. It just won't happen. How do we escape that sense of dissatisfaction that we weren't able to fulfill our dreams? We weren't able to get it all done. Well, that's what Ecclesiastes is about, uh, chapter 6, is how to escape this low life, this existence of living down here when you wish you could achieve all of your high hopes. And he says there's two reasons why we don't achieve it all mentioned in this passage. There's two reasons why our dreams come crashing down. One is our lack of ability or lack of empowerment that only God can provide. And second is our lack of understanding how to enjoy what God has given. I want you to see them both. And then we'll look to the solution of how we can find more more and more and more satisfaction and joy in this low life that we have to uh, live. First of all, um, don't miss the word uh, prevalent, verse 1. There's this evil, he says, which I've seen under the sun. It's prevalent. In other words, the more I got to meditating on that, I said, I'm not the only one. You got this problem too. We've all got this problem. It's prevalent. It's common. It's widespread. That's what it means. You're not going to go somewhere and find somebody who doesn't have this problem of not being fully satisfied in all they have to do. Um, and then he, he, he mentions an illustration that ought to be like a no-brainer. Uh, verse 2, a, a man to whom God's given riches, wealth, and honor. You think, well, if I got that, I'm happy. Riches, wealth, and honor. And then he says, that person's not happy. It's like, what? That, and that's prevalent. That's fairly common. That's widespread that people have money, 
They have things. They have friendships and honor and respect. And they still lack satisfaction and joy. Wow, that's a bummer. It's like, that shouldn't be. And that's what he says. He says, yeah, that's, that's a severe affliction. That's not just an affliction. He said, that's painfully afflicting. Uh, that we could have everything we need and desire and yet still not be empowered to enjoy it. Like, we, we should be able to enjoy it. We look around this room. Everybody in this room has enough. We have enough to have joy. And, and that's his point. That we should be able to, given our sta- status, to really enjoy life. And yet it's very prevalent that it's not happening. It's not happening why it should happen, uh, as it should happen. So why is that? Why is it not happening? And as I wrestle with that question, that we have the wealth, the riches, the honor, we have what's necessary to be satisfied, why are we not satisfied? Well, I don't think the answer's here. The answer is all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. The problem is not because um, God has afflicted us with a severe affliction, but it's rather because we have afflicted ourselves with a severe affliction. We are under the curse of God. In Genesis chapter 3, You remember the story after Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden tree. God comes and meets with them. And I just want to read the curse that he gives to Adam in this this story. Genesis 3, beginning at verse 17, says, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Here's the results of your actions. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, and from, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Just stop and imagine this for a minute. If you were Adam and Eve, before you disobeyed God, He gave you a simple command, don't eat from that particular tree over there, and you eat it, and then God says, okay, now, there are consequences. I told you that if you ate from that tree, there would be consequences. Let me begin to unpack that for you, and part of that is you're not going to be able to fellowship in the Garden of Eden anymore. None of us were born in Eden. We were born on earth here, but outside of the intimate fellowship with God. Adam and Eve were immediately thrown out of the Garden of Eden. And outside the Garden of Eden, they noticed something the very next day that was different from what they had in the Garden of Eden. Now, they were tilling the garden, and it was painful. Now they're not satisfied. They used to be satisfied. Now it's painful. It says now there is toil. Toil didn't exist before. Now there is sweat. Sweat didn't exist before. Now there's pain. Pain did not exist prior to their 
disobedience. So this curse of pain, dissatisfaction, you see, they are still wealthy people. They still have wealth, riches, honor, but they're not satisfied. And they're not going to be satisfied until they realize their satisfaction is not in these things. Their satisfaction comes from surrender to and obedience to God. That's the only thing that changed. They ceased being surrendered to and obedient to God. And when they lost that sweet surrender and submission, when they lost that righteous record of obeying God's commands, then came pain. Then came dissatisfaction. And there are a lot of people who don't get that. They don't understand why they can't be happy. Why they can't get it. And you can't get it outside intimate fellowship with God. He is the one who provides our joy and our satisfaction. Psalm 1611, in God's presence is fullness of joy. In his presence is fullness of joy. And in his right hand, there are pleasures forever. What a, what a passage. Do you want to be tapped in to the source of joy and satisfaction? In God's presence is fullness of joy. And in his right hand, there are pleasures forever. So many people are missing those pleasures. They're missing those joys because they are trying to find it outside of fellowship with God. As Ecclesiastes talks about it, they're trying to find it under the sun, like down here on earth, instead of above the sun in heaven with God in his glory. There's no way... We're going to find full, complete satisfaction apart from God's grace. Why? Back in Ecclesiastes 6, verse 2. Because God has not empowered him. It's worth circling. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability. People say, I don't believe in uh, sovereignty. I believe in free will. Yeah, you've got free will. You, you've, you've got... The ability to choose things. But let me tell you this. You don't have the ability to choose joy in God. They say, yes, I do. I say, all right, go ahead and do it. Never had anybody do it. Why? Ecclesiastes 6.2 says, because God has not empowered you. God has not given you that freedom. God has not given you that ability. The only way you're possibly going to get that is through absolute surrender and submission to God. Only He can give it. It's His gift. I know it's been a few weeks, but look back at chapter 5. I preached on this before. Chapter 5, verse 19. Don't miss the gift of Ecclesiastes 5, verse 19. It says, Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, He has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and to rejoice in his labor. Last phrase, this is 
the gift of God. This is not something you earn. It's not something you work up. It's not something you achieve. It's not something you accomplish. It's not something you freely choose. It is freely given. It's a gift. And if you're not having satisfaction in life, if you're not having joy in all that you do, it's because God has not empowered you yet. doesn't mean you can't get there. It just means it's got to come from above, not through you. God has to empower us. It's frustrating to try to achieve joy outside of God. How many of us have bought a camper, or bought a boat, or bought a car, or bought new clothes, or bought a sewing machine, or bought a gun, bow and arrow? I mean, it just goes on and on. And why do we buy these things? It's going to give us joy. I'm going to be so happy. And we get these things, and we get them all rigged up, and we get on our little trip to use these things. And somebody messes with us, and we're sad, and we're frustrated, and it's raining, and it's lightning, and, it, uh, and, and then we see some low-life foreigner come along with one better than us, and they seem to be having fun. And that's exactly what he describes here. You've got this poor man who comes along beside you, and he's having all the fun in the world, and you're frustrated, and you're not getting it yet. God has empowered him, not empowered you. He says, it's a severe affliction. We struggle with. He says, there's a solution. It's understanding God's empowerment. We've got to come to grips with the fact we have no ability to enjoy this life apart from grace. God's grace. He wants us to enjoy life. When he came to his disciples, he said, I've come to give you fullness of joy. I want you to have joy and happiness. But it doesn't arrive apart from grace. Let's kind of work through the text real quickly. As, as, he, as he illustrates it, he illustrates it emphatically. Verse 3 says, if a man fathers a hundred children... And lives many years, however they may be. I don't know how long it would take you to have a hundred kids. You know, and he says, it may, be, it may take a long time. But if you had that happen to you. But your soul is not satisfied with the good things that he does. Not even have a, a proper burial. Better is a miscarriage than that man. That's, I mean, that's emphatic illustration. And he goes on to describe that even further. He says, let's suppose this, this man didn't just live a lot of years to have a hundred children. Let's suppose he lives a thousand years twice. You would think if he lived that long, at least one of those kids would somehow give him joy and satisfaction. And he says, and if he doesn't get that joy and satisfaction, better is the miscarriage than him. And then he illustrates miscarriage just a little bit to let us know what he means by that. A child that's born and dies in the womb. 
and says that child that was born and dies in the womb never sees the light of day. So that child comes obscurely to us and leaves obscurely to us. And most people don't even know about it until they talk to someone else who's gone through it. But he says the miscarried miscarried child is better off than the man who had a hundred kids. How can that possibly be? He says the, what, the reason it is is because the miscarried child experienced pain, yes, but never missed pleasure. The, never had to deal with that issue. You live a thousand years or two thousand years or you have a hundred kids, you've got opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be satisfied. And you miss it. He says, that's vain. That's futility. That's grievous futility. To have had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be satisfied by the gift of God. And you missed it. See, the miscarried child didn't miss it. They got all God gave them. But you've been given so much more. And we miss it. Uh, he even gives illustrations like food and education. Verse 7, 8, 9 says... All a man's labors for his mouth. We, we eat, and yet we still don't seem to be satisfied. We always want more. Verse 8, for what advantage does the wise man uh, have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have, knowing how to walk before the living? What, are the, what the eyes see seems to be better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and striving after wind. Well, seems like we're always living for the two birds in the bush instead of enjoying the one bird in the hand. Kind of analogy. She said, you've been given so much and we're not finding that satisfaction. So let's, let's just move on to the solution. Um, how do we lose this life? How do we lose the low life and start living a happy life? A more exciting, fulfilled life. It's, it's, it's here in the passage, verses 10, 11, and 12. Whatever exists has already been named. It's known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who's stronger than he is. First phrase, it, whatever exists has already been named. What is he telling us there? One of the characteristics still today, but very clearly in the Old Testament era, was that if you named something, you were exercising authority over it. When Adam named the animals, he was exercising his rulership over the animals. What God is saying here is that everything that exists has already been named. God's named it. God has authority. God's in charge. God is sovereign. He is over everything. When you get to heaven, you can say, we called it this. God said, yeah, but I named it this, whatever it is. God's already named it. God's in charge. And you quickly submit. Yeah, 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 you're right. That's what it is. Because he created it. It's his. He has the authority and the right to name things. Now, how did that help us? Why is he telling us that? 
He's telling us that because if you want to lose this low life, you've got to, number one, acknowledge who's doing the naming. You've got to acknowledge that God is sovereign. You've got to acknowledge that God is the boss. You'll see why that's important in just a minute. You've got to be there and acknowledge that. God controls everything. I've already shared some. If God controls everything, then God controls the, the happiness and the satisfaction. So you run to God for it. Instead of trying to do one more thing to achieve it, you can have it right where you are. It reminds me of the beautiful verse. You, many of you have it memorized. Some are new. Uh, look at Romans 8, 28. Just keep the beauty of this in your heart and life. Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes. God's in charge. God can cause all things. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. I mean, what a beautiful passage. If I love God, see, there's a clue right there. I need to run to Christ. I need to love Jesus. If I love God, if I'm called to do things for God, and I live for, to fulfill that calling and that purpose, it says God will cause everything that's around me he will cause it all to work together for my good it it took me a long time to figure this out so many times you know somebody would come to me and say david can you help me with this david i need to tell you about this i need to tell you this what would you do if, if you had that 15 20 times this week hey david can you help me with this 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 about the 10th, 11th, 12th, 15th time, you say, oh, good grief. No, I'm tired. I can't help you. Or do you say, you know, I'd be happy to help you with that. Took me a long time to get there. Now that's one of the first thoughts. You know, I'd be happy to help you with that. If I'm able, I would be happy. If God's called me to do that, And I certainly love Jesus. Then not only would I be happy to help you with that. I'm going to find happiness in helping you with that. Because God's going to cause all this to work together. In such a way that it's going to fill up my life with joy. Well, you you don't get it yet. You haven't been working it that way yet. And the life we live, we, we say... I can't help you because I need to do one more thing for my happiness. And we try to step outside of God's sovereignty. We want to be boss. I want to be boss of my time. I want to be boss of my schedule. I want to be boss of what I do today. And if I can be the boss, I can produce the joy. And all of heaven is shaking their heads. When will they learn? It doesn't work that way. It's prevalent among men to do it that way. But that's not the way it works. Everything's already been named. You don't get to be boss. God's the boss. That's the point. God's already named it. Uh, We need to quit trying to be the boss, to be on top. If I can just get on top of my schedule, if I can just get on top of my bills, if I can just get on top of my relationship issues, if I can get on top 
then I will be happy. And God says, no, the way to be happy is to surrender and be submissive to the top. To be under the authority of God. To be subdued to His will and reign. That's where joy and happiness will come. Fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Surrender to the boss instead of seeking to be that boss. Now, number two, acknowledge we're not the boss. Number two, accept, I don't know how I have it here, accept our limitations as part of our humanity. Better way to say it, recognize I'm not Superman and you're not either. Recognize you're not Superwoman. Accept your limitations. I don't have to be the boss. I don't have to be Superman or Superwoman to make this work out. He says, uh, Ecclesiastes 6, the second part, he says, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. How many of you pick a fight intentionally with somebody bigger than you? I hope not. That's foolish. You don't do that. It's like you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. That's just stupid. And he says, he said, who would dispute with someone? Why would you argue with God? God's bigger than you, right? So why would you argue with him? Why would you think, I can be bigger, I can be better, and that will make me happy? I'll be happy when I can do what I want to do. Take Tiger Woods. Tragic accident last week for Tiger. But I got to thinking, he was the first athlete in, in our lifetime that made a billion dollars as an athlete. He can have anything he wants. But guess what? He still can't control his circumstances to give him joy. He can't do it. And you can't do it. And I can't do it. Why? Because we're not the boss. And we've got limitations. We've got to acknowledge that we're not the boss, that God is sovereign. Quit trying to take his place. And we've got to quit arguing with him. Uh, disputing with him. Uh, trying to be as strong or as big as him. The, the last part of Ecclesiastes. Um, verse 11 and 12. For there are many words which increase futility. You can just go on and on and on about this. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what's good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He'll spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what's going to happen after him under the sun? We constantly dispute with God think we've got it all figured out, but we don't. came across a great passage that kind of sums it up. Look at Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. Beginning at verse 9. Does it get more plain than this? 
Hear God's word. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. That's pretty plain. Are you arguing with God? You're arguing to be sovereign, to name things, to be the boss, to do your own life. Are you fussing a little bit? You know, we talked about it last week. As Mark proclaimed God's word, don't grumble and complain. We're not those kind of people. He says, the person who wants to go that route, whoa, 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 that's going to be trouble. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. And he gives an illustration. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth will the clay say to the potter. So you're clay, I'm clay, God's the potter. Will, will we ever say, what are you doing? And yet we do. Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. God must have really fumbled here. Must have not used his fingers when he was working on me. That's kind of illustration. Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begatting? Or to a woman, what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me about the things to come. Ask me about the things to come. Concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. How often do we argue with God instead of come to him like that and say, God, you've, you've created it all. You've made me my height, my frame. I didn't get a choice. My dream was to be taller, to be stronger, to be bigger. I didn't get my dream. I got life under God, under a sovereign who gave me a name. And when you begin to realize that and understand that, and you come under him instead of trying to argue with him and get over him and fix it yourself. You begin then to experience the satisfaction and joy he's designed for you right where you are in the ministry and calling that he's given you. God gives great gifts. He alone knows the path he's chosen for you. He alone knows how to find satisfaction on that path. The whole passage here kind of reminded me of, uh, you know, that Matthew 7 passage where it talks about the man who builds a house on the rock and a house builds a house on the sand. You know that story. Anybody here want to build a house on the sand when you've got an option to build a house on a rock? I mean, I, I would hope most of you would say, no, no, no. Building a house on the sand is crazy. This place Patty and I stayed in the last two weeks down at uh, Garden City. Great place in South Carolina. Got great food. We got this great COVID deal from the timeshare we owned. Said a lot of people weren't able to experience uh, their timeshare because of COVID. So we'll give you a place at any one of our resorts for $299 a week. I said, I'm in on that. So we went. We went to a place I'd never been to. It's a 16-story high-rise on the sand. The water, the waves were as far from me to Eric. So I'm on the 14th floor. For me to see beach, I have to lean over the edge because there's just a little bit down there. Everything else is water. The whole time, Patty and I thought we were on a cruise ship. 
All we could see was water for, for miles and miles. And I kept thinking, I said, if I were building this, I would have, have guide wires on the other side holding it back. This thing has got to fall into the ocean at some point. It's just way too close. It bothered me the whole time. If a storm had come, I was leaving. I don't know how it has stood there. They must have drilled down until they reached rock. I don't know. But I just felt like this needs to fall. It just needs to. It's too close. How many times our lives are that way? They really need to fall. Because we've not been building them on God's sovereignty and God's calling and God's purpose and God's plan. We've been building our lives on our strength, our dreams, and they've been crashing. But when we build correctly, God gives us stability, satisfaction, and joy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that keeps us from walking through life blindly, carelessly, and missing the joy that's been designed. There are people here who are no better than a miscarriage. They're missing the opportunity to have joy. Father, we ask that you would take us from that obscure place, that painful, lonely place, to understand your path for us and our need for power from you. And Lord, may we just wait a minute here as you told your disciples to stay in Jerusalem until power comes down from above. Lord, let us wait upon you for power. Help us to realize it's not by our might. It's not by our wisdom. But it's by the power that comes from above. Fill us with your power. Fill us with your spirit. Transform us until we are happy to do the work you have called us to do each day. That we enjoy it and find satisfaction in it. Forgive us, Lord, for running against you, arguing, fussing, grumbling, complaining. Lord, have mercy. Forgive us and turn us back to embracing you as our Father, as our God, as our Savior and Redeemer. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.